Hi there, friend. My name is John Werner. I used to be a part of the largest cult in the United States. After studying the Bible, Christian history, and ministry, I set my sights on confronting the problematic nature of white evangelicalism in the United States. In 2019, I published my first book as a first step in addressing the subtle issues of this complex system. This podcast will continue that work under the same title. Welcome to The Cult of Christianity. Money is sometimes considered to be the root of all evil. It certainly is a root, though if money were somehow eradicated, I doubt evil would completely vanish. The clear message of this cliche is more accurately, if you can't understand why an injustice is happening on a systemic level, follow the money. It is an odd thing, isn't it? From getting off the gold standard to the power of the Federal Reserve to memefied institutions such as Bitcoin, money might be the most clearly socially constructed material in existence. It is odd that the most cash I think I have ever seen in one place is $2,000, yet I had spent much more than that in a month before I saw such cash. I go online and watch numbers rise and fall based on my labor, gifts given and received, and a tax system so complicated, not even experts intuitively understand it. Currency is the alternative to a barter system. Rather than favors, trades, and services being traded by individuals, often without any real regulation, money proves to be an efficient and fluid common value that can quantify tasks, resources, and trinkets. The invention of money took place before the beginning of written history. Educated guesses aside, we don't know who or even which culture invented currency as we understand it. Ancient civilizations almost certainly bartered livestock and grain, uh, things directly useful in themselves, but also merely attractive items, such as shells or beads, were exchanged for more functional commodities. Due to the complexities of ancient history, and because economic systems uh, precede written history, it is impossible to trace the true origin of the invention of money and the transition from barter systems to monetary systems. I am fairly convinced that the transition was likely predicated on the concept of debts and indentured servitude. Folks would trade their labor and use coins to represent such labor, and in addition would sometimes make some sort of deposit or owe a debt for a favor and eventually wanted symbols to prove the verbal contract. To me, it is kind of funny to think about how the concept of debt likely preceded the concept of local and certainly universal currency. In fact, a truly completely universal currency had only been wondered about and not practically attempted until Bitcoin came along. And even that has had its own issues. Yet devoid of all that context, most of American life centers around obtaining, or at least owing, money. On March 10th, 1862, the first United States paper money was issued. The denominations at the time were $5, $10, and $20. Rather interesting that the American paper currency was established during Civil War. The Confederate States dollar was first issued just before the outbreak of the American Civil War by the newly formed Confederacy. 
It was not backed by hard assets, but simply a promise to pay the bearer after the war on the prospect of Southern victory and independence. As the Civil War progressed and victory of the South seemed less and less likely, the value of this dollar declined. After the Confederacy's defeat, its money had no value, and both individuals and banks lost large sums. It seems that in the United States, currency was a means to identify with an ideological group. Fast forwarding. In 1971, United States President Richard Nixon announced that the U.S. dollar would not be directly convertible to gold anymore. This measure effectively destroyed the previous system by removing one of its main pieces in what came to be known as the Nixon shock. Since then, the U.S. dollar, and thus all national currencies, are free-floating currencies. Additionally, international, national, and local money is now dominated by virtual credit rather than real gold bars. Before this crucial mistake in history, which likely accelerated the momentum towards nihilism for the U.S. and the world, the inclusion of the motto, In God We Trust on All Currency, was required by law in 1950. Five. It first appeared on paper money in 1957, on $1 silver certificates, and on all Federal Reserve notes beginning in 1963. However, this phrase was, once again, tied to Civil War history. According to the Treasury Department, quote, in God we trust, end quote, was first added to the two-cent piece in 1864, largely because of the increased religious sentiment existing during the Civil War. Prior to that, our unofficial slogan was the decidedly less religious e pluribus unum, out of many, one. So what was the environment in the 50s that allowed for the phrase in God we trust to be mandated in law? In God we trust didn't pick up steam until the 1950s at the pinnacle of anti-communist fervor in America. The same time One Nation Under God was added to the Pledge of Allegiance, politicians in both parties were eager to make a clear distinction between God-fearing America and the godless Soviet Union. Once again, it seems currency was now symbolic of identity rather than a simple IOU. The momentum of anti-communist rhetoric has not slowed down. A 2003 CNN poll found that 90% of Americans supported having In God We Trust on American cash and coins. The few fringe groups who have tried to make a court case that this theological statement is not in the spirit of the First Amendment's guarantee that people can exercise or not exercise a religion of their choice, and they continue to be met with the same defense that the primary purpose of the slogan is secular. That's a pretty amazing determination, isn't it? Not only do these four words presume a belief in God, but that we, not the individual, the collective, not only acknowledge a vague divine existence, but trust this God. Contextually, this trust is that this God will take care of the United States. I know zero holy books that claim any special favor of God's gaze on the United States. 
It seems that such an extreme belief that is printed on the valuable paper notes in my wallet as I speak shows the power of some group, religion, or perhaps even a white evangelical cult. It is likely you can guess what I suppose to be reality. The cult's reach is more subtle than advertising and as overt as advertising. But let's assume the courts are right and that this historical practice of throwing a theological statement on currency is somehow a secular tradition. How should Christians relate to money according to their own standards? Well, one cannot help but think of tithing when considering the church's view on money. This is a long-standing tradition that began during Old Testament times, as early as the first book of the Bible. Abraham, after rescuing Lot, met with Melchizedek. After Melchizedek's blessing, Abraham gave him a tenth of everything he had obtained from battle. Quote, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's from Genesis fourteen, eighteen through 20. Later on, Abraham's grandson had a rather infamous dream about a ladder. And after he received God's blessing, he gave up a tenth. Quote, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So, early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of the place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. Could be Luz, but I'm pretty sure it's Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house, and all that you give me, I will give a full tenth back to you. And that's from Genesis twenty-eight sixteen through 22. The concept of tithing, though, is more specifically mentioned in the book of books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The tithe system was coordinated in a seven-year sequence. Uh, this mandatory tithe was distributed locally to support the Levites and assist the poor. Historically, during the first temple period, the first tithe was given to the Levites. Unlike other offerings, which were restricted to consumption within the tabernacle, the second tithe could be consumed anywhere. On years 1, 2, 4, and 5, Israelites took a second tithe that was brought to the area of the temple. The owner of the produce was to separate and bring a tenth of his finished produce to the old city of Jerusalem after the first tithe. But if the family lived too far away from Jerusalem, the tithe could be redeemed upon coins. Then the Bible required the owner of the redeemed coins to spend the tithe to, quote, buy whatever you'd like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, or anything you wish. 
Implicit in the commandment was an obligation to spend the coins on items meant for human consumption. In years 3 and 6, the Israelites set aside the second tithe instead as the poor tithe, and it was given to the strangers, orphans, and widows. The Levites, also known as the tribe of Levi, were descendants of Levi. They were assistants to the Aaronic priests. Uh, Their function in society was that of temple officials, teachers, and trusted civil leaders who supervised and witnessed binding agreements. The goods donated from the other Israelite tribes were their source of sustenance. They received from all of Israel a tithe of food or livestock for support and in turn would set aside a tenth portion of that tithe for the Aaronic priest. An additional tithe mentioned in the book of Leviticus is the cattle tithe, which is to be sacrificed at the temple in Jerusalem. The book of Malachi has one of the most quoted biblical passages about tithing directed to the descendants of Jacob. Here's the quote. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. That's from Malachi 3 verses 6 through 12. While there is some shaming language in that passage, it is also worth noting that uh, priests are inferring God's wisdom in saving and preparing. This isn't strictly about avoiding God's punishment, but rather recognizing the value of wisely creating a basic structure that protects from overconsumption. It is rather fascinating that early tithing was somewhat socialist and seemed to be primarily concerned with setting up a social safety net for those who needed it. One could isogeet that uh, the priests set up this system so they did not have to work as hard to obtain food or livestock, but that is historically uncharitable. Priesthood was a dirty, 24-7, emotionally draining job. People were sharing what little goods were around, and the likelihood of the system being set up with sinister motives is relatively small. However, It is rather obvious to our eyes that this system could be abused, especially as society develops and certain evildoers become rather clever. That is why, thousands of years later, Jesus put some awful religious leaders in their place. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Notice Jesus didn't say 
that they must abolish the practice of tithing, but he clearly and angrily communicated that they were abusing the system and should care more about justice, mercy, and faithfulness than the tithing system. Caring about distributing spices is rather silly if you are neglecting just and kind practices, especially towards the poor. So tithes and offerings are not unfounded biblically, but the image of a plate being passed around as checks and 20s are being dropped in is certainly not culturally identical to how it used to be. I suppose one could argue money is the cultural equivalent of donating harvests and livestock, since that is how we obtain our food trinkets and it is our mean, our means of uh, living. Still, a soup kitchen feels more consistent with biblical tithing than throwing money into a church bank account. Many of the ancient and historic Christian churches uh, practice tithing as it was taught by the Council of Tours in AD 561, or excuse me, uh, 567. And in the Third Council of Macon in AD 585, a penalty of excommunication was prescribed for all those who did not adhere to this uh, ecclesiastical law. Tithes can be given to the church at once, as is the custom um, in many Christian countries with a church tax, or distributed throughout the year during uh, the part of the Western Christian liturgies known as the offertory. People often place a portion of their tithes in the collection plate, or in trendy churches use the QR code on their bulletin. According to a 2018 study by LifeWay Research that interviewed 1,010 Americans, 86% of people with evangelical beliefs say that tithing is still a biblical commandment today. Of these, 87% of Baptist believers, 86% of Pentecostal believers, 81% of non-denominational believers share this position. The Book of Church Order of the Presbyterian Church in America, the denomination what I grew up in, that book states that giving has always been a mark of Christian commitment and discipleship. The ways in which a believer uses God's gifts of material goods, personal abilities, and time should reflect a faithful response to God's self-giving in Jesus Christ and Christ's call to minister to and share with others in the world. Tithing is a primary expression of of the Christian discipline of stewardship. I'm going to talk more about this concept of stewardship later. Almost all denominations, especially the American ones, have statements like these. Some more codified, some bolder, but minus Eastern Orthodox Christianity, who does not require tithing or accept money. Virtually all Christian churches I'm aware of address this topic. Did you catch the subtle tone shift in the PCA's BCO? Tithing seems less about your community and more about responding to Jesus Christ. The idea that life is a gift and so is everything else. So what gives you the right not to give a little bit back? Well, obviously, you are not using a metaphysical pneumatic tube or cash app to throw the Lord a few bucks. Only crazy religious fanatics would postulate such a ridiculous claim. Churches compel you to take 10% off the top of your income coincidentally in addition to what Uncle Sam taxes the poorer folks of this country and give it to the church so that they can do the Lord's work. Sure seems lazy that God can't do his own work. 
Must be one of those entitled millennials I keep hearing about. At any rate, I assume this money will be used primarily to help feed the hungry and give folks means of working and keeping with the Old Testament origins of this practice, right? And as far as those who we who the church will help first, uh, churches are primarily targeting their funds to widows, orphans, and immigrants, right? As Donald Trump famously stated, wrong. I've never been a member or a leader in a church or even heard of an American church that gave the majority of tithes they collected to hungry orphans, hurting widows, or anyone that could be considered a stranger. Most of the budgets I have seen seem to go to mission trips to further proselytize, children's ministries to help parents work more hours at their job, and most alarmingly, the pastor's salaries and benefits. I suppose one could argue that this isn't completely antithetical to Old Testament tradition since the priesthood would get a slice of the pie. However, I think it is grossly unfair to uh, equivocate the work priests did to the work, or lack thereof, of American pastors. The physical and philosophical needs of a congregation are often ignored for monetary and cultural power. I actually think it is rather ridiculous that pastors have salaries, often with benefits. I find there may be an unspoken mimicking of larger society within the evangelical coat that deludes its followers into thinking they live in a meritocracy, not a theocratic tyranny. Illusions of meritocracy are always used to keep people around long after they should have left. The average pastor in the U.S. may only make 38000 a year, but that amount is not earned. Like politicians, pastors do not have to produce anything. They rely entirely on donations. The pastorate is rarely a full-time job, though it is claimed to be. Socializing, lecturing, and pretending to study an ancient text may be emotionally draining, but jobs require actual labor, not pontificating beliefs. If people stopped paying pastors... Pastors would cease to exist as we know them. Doesn't sound like a sacrificial calling from the divine to me. If you stopped paying artists, there would still be art. Most suggested uh, church budget templates recommend that pastors should be paid a quarter of the total church budget, not including health insurance, housing allowance, traveling expenses, or discretionary Lunches. To reiterate, a pastor's money is typically around 25% of a church's budget, while generally, in contrast, nonprofit CEOs make less than 10% of the total budget. Why are those who claim to follow Jesus, teach the Bible, and even claim to speak for God, taking a paycheck? Jesus even said to his 12 disciples, As you go, preach, saying, Thy kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two tunics or sandals or a staff. Now, the raising the dead and casting out demons bit seems to make this quote rather context-specific. Even so, preachers might be worthy of some support, but likely only the bare minimum. Even further, Jesus' 12 disciples 
seemed less like suit-and-tie pulpit thumpers and like mystical vagabonds. Jesus told them, Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff nor a bag nor bread nor money, and do not even take uh, two tunics apiece. And whatever house you enter, stay there and take your leave from there. The Pauline epistles seem to be consistent with the idea that those following in Jesus' footsteps will not be lacking and can rely on the support of others. That sounds in keeping with getting a slice of a tithe that is primarily supposed to help poor folks in the communities. In other words, religious leaders are expected to be poor and have little to no possession. Every single pastor's house I've been in, with possibly one exception, had a nicer house than I grew up in, with fancy dinnerware, impressive TVs, and humongous libraries. By the way, that one exception... He ended up selling all his possessions to preach in Africa. Unfortunately, he was hardly supported in that effort and ended up having to come back to the States. I get nauseous when I talk about this topic. When when I signed up to be a pastor, I assumed I would be poor and financially struggling my whole life. I didn't connect until much later that I've never known a pastor to go hungry. Also, pastors rarely do administrative work. Some administrators of larger churches actually make more than the pastor. The guys being pastoral humility, the resources still being wasted. Additionally, there are assistant pastors and youth pastors and children's pastors and childcare workers and musicians and janitors and sound technicians and often a host of other employees of the church. Employees of the church. Employees of the church. What an unfoundedly anti-biblical concept. And there are poor churches. In these churches, it is more common for the pastor to be the only paid staff. All other necessary labor to keep the institution running is volunteer. But churches are not always upfront with their members about their money. Because of this, they ask for members to serve the Lord through labor for their church and neglect to pay them. U.S. dollars are not the only currency to the evangelical cult. The barter system is alive and well, doing nice, quaint, and seemingly harmless tasks around the narthexes and fellowship halls of the U.S. is demanded in exchange for social status, meaningless titles, and pastoral favor. Church leaders often preserve their power regardless of their net worth. The classist system inside the white evangelical cult mirrors late capitalist dysfunction. You do not have to be particularly anti-capitalist to face the honest reality that over time, greed wastes supply and manipulates demand. Churches make promises they cannot keep if you pretend to obey rules you cannot follow. There is no meritocracy in church. Odd that churches would even want to pretend that there is one. Isn't the whole appeal of the gospel that it is universally good news? Perhaps most churches don't explicitly say that money, biblical knowledge, and a clean-cut look will get you advantages in their community, but the evidence is most certainly there. The rulers of a church will talk like a centrist to get 
to where they are, then quickly adopt authoritarian tones in their exercises of power. Like politics, churches might spew some progressive rhetoric for the sake of a better public image. Perhaps their worship teams and committees will have some women, and God forbid a POC. Maybe they'll say something like they are gay accepting or fumble their way to gay affirming. But even these more palatable churches seem to always backslide into hierarchies that benefit few and hurt many. Think about it this way. Most children in this country are told if they study, go to college, work hard at their job, and spend and save wisely, they will have a happy, successful, and admirable life. Likewise, children in churches are told if they listen, study the Bible, marry a Christian, evangelize, and tithe, they will have a peace that surpasses all understanding in this life and the next. This formula, secret sauce, and key to unlock happiness seems like a placebo-like snake oil that works for some, specifically white people, who are already predisposed to fully believe in it and not for everyone. But if the idea that these recipes are not delicious to every palate is even casually brought up, expect to be devoured. Name-calling is the favorite weapon of oppressors. If you're anti-capitalist, you must be a commie traitor or pro-dictatorship. If you're anti-Christianity, you must be lost, bad company, or even satanic. Well, forgive my immaturity, but I must hurl a name back at those who persecute me. Both capitalism and Christianity are classist. And classism is differential treatment based on perceived social rank. Classism is the systemic oppression of subordinated class groups to advantage and strengthen the dominant class groups. It's a systematic assignment of characteristics, of worth, and ability based on uh, predetermined rankings. Classism is found in individual attitudes and behaviors, systems of policies and practices that are set up to benefit the upper classes at the expense of the lower classes, resulting in drastic income and wealth inequality as well as more general social status. Most are familiar with a three-class system, wealthy, middle, poor. Sometimes these are called ruling, working, and consuming. When people talk about the middle class disappearing, this sounds like the poor class is growing, which, in reality, the first cause is the wealthy ruling class obtaining more wealth and social leverage. Christianity sometimes looks like a three-class system, but evangelicalism is most often a two-class cult. There are leaders and there are followers. This happens because the leaders have all the wealth and social leverage. I have countless anecdotes about this. I know of people getting in trouble with churches for having unsanctioned Bible studies. I know of pastoral interns who have been told to lie about fulfilling their requirements because the rulers did not want them preaching at their church, even though they accepted other kinds of free labor. I know of people who have been excommunicated for living with their fiancés. I know of countless situations where a pastor decreed policy through executive order. There was no democracy. 
Every time evangelicals have gotten themselves into the political sphere, they seem to favor ruling classes and spit on the lower ones. I have trouble deciding whether this is simply out of habit or some malicious intent. Part of the poem inscribed on the Statue of uh, Liberty. It reads, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless tempest tossed to me, I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Two years ago, there was conservative and evangelical support in adding a drastically antonymous phrase to this poem. In an interview, the head of Citizenship and Immigration Services tweaked the passage on the fly. He said, give me your tired, your poor, your huddle masses, yearning to breathe free, who can stand on their own two feet and will, who will not become a public charge. And he later said the poem had referred to, uh, originally referred to people coming from Europe. So in other words, this poem should be only understood for white people. Uh, well, thankfully, no action was taken on the physical poem at the Statue of Liberty, but it is quite troubling that conservative evangelicals would seem to appreciate it. Additionally, the attitude I've heard from Christians towards houseless folks um, and those immigrating here and just generally poor folk uh, has been extremely intolerant. One church where I was in leadership discouraged inviting homeless folk to church because it would make the suburban white parents fearful for their children's safety. Even the pro-refugee and pro-houseless support ministries I have known oft have impossible to meet requirements to receive their help unless you either go to church or get a job. The crony capitalist parallels in church might just be too numerous to to name, Uh, while the, the people who ought most to be on the side of the poor Our conservative Christian friends are the ones seeking most actively to ensure they remain without health care. We will continue to be mired in arguments. And and the children of the poor, the most innocent and defenseless, remain without health coverage. The Washington Post and Kaiser Family Foundation asked uh, 1,686 American adults their perspectives on poverty and found that religion is a significant predictor of how Americans perceive poverty. 46, 46% of all Christians said that a lack of effort is generally to blame for a person's poverty compared with 29% of all non-Christians. The gulf widens further among specific Christian groups. 53% of white evangelicals blamed lack of effort while 41% blamed circumstances. By contrast, more than two to one Americans who are atheists, agnostic, or have no particular affiliation said difficult circumstances are more to blame when a person is poor rather than a lack of effort. The numbers are 65 to 31. Though there is some out-of-context Bible verses that say, if you do not work, you won't eat. That doesn't mean that people without work should not eat. Even further, when jobs aren't paying a fair amount, it is classism that keeps poor people poor, not some unproven stereotype of laziness. In fact, the laziest class is always the one with the most resources and the one that makes the rules. This is true in capitalism, and this is true in Christianity. I have heard so many, 
many explanations as to why classism appears in Christianity, and yet evangelicals never point the fingers at their own sin. It is either God's design, the natural order of things, or an unavoidable reality. (laughs) Well, Jesus once told a rich young ruler, if you want to enter into uh, eternal life, keep the commandments. Well, the ruler said to Jesus, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to Jesus, all these things I have obeyed since I was a kid. What do I still lack? Jesus looked at him and said to him, if you want to be perfect, go, sell, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful because he had many possessions. I've heard plenty of sermons on this passage, yet each time the pastor and his followers got in their cars, drove to their houses, and enjoyed some TV. Did I miss the part where Jesus asterisked this conversation? Most justifications for not living a monastic uh, lifestyle point out that Jesus was specifically talking to this guy, not to everyone. Funny how they won't apply that kind of contextualization to the supposed anti-gay passages of the Bible. I digress. Either way, why are evangelicals such a clear caricature of this rich young ruler? The cognitive dissonance between what evangelicals say and what they do is dumbfounding from a bird's eye view. The passages that directly address their failures are verbally parkoured and ignored in favor of passages that can be used to belittle the already vulnerable. It is amazing how anti-Christ Christians can be. I've heard so many words from the evangelical cult. I've heard eloquence waxed. I've heard impassioned sermons addressing greed, corruption, and a need for giving. Yet, what have I seen? I've seen nothing. Not even the few instances of humanitarian aid or charitable events seem to be more compelling than what a McDonald's might do for good PR. Hiding behind the gospel as the antidote that no one gets to sell is such a BS technique designed to help get away with putting minimum effort into helping their communities and society as a whole. This gets complicated when you are still in the cult. Um, I've been on missions trips and uh, participated in projects that were genuinely helpful to certain communities. Um, It is encouraging when I reflect on all the houses built, uh, camps ran, and supplies provided by various Christian organizations I've been affiliated with. There are helpful people out there, and they cannot help but be helpful. And some of those people might say they would not be so helpful without their faith. And I actually often pontificated in my evangelical life that if I were not a Christian, I would not be a part of such good things. But since leaving the faith, I can testify that the inverse is true. I have only volunteered and donated more since my exodus from the evangelical cult. But perhaps that isn't everyone. Maybe faith does genuinely activate good work. However, I'm left wondering if that is more problematic. If the only thing that can uh, motivate a person to be helpful is a promise of eternal life, or worse, a threat of eternal punishment if not done, maybe that person is not exceptionally moral. 
And claiming moral authority is generally not advisable. Uh, For my writers out there, think showing, not telling. Talking about how good you are is not any kind of measure for how good you are in reality. In fact, incessant insisting that you are doing good work may be an indicator that you are not doing all that much. Now, to be fair, all folks have inconsistencies between what they believe and how they act. Uh, Community won't automatically erase hypocrisy for the individual. However, if evangelicals would stop clinging to their divine certainty, shut up, and just do the right thing, they would not be characterized as hypocritical so often, even so. As much as there is hypocrisy, even more disturbing is the awful rhetoric that is spewed in churches every week. As mentioned before, conservative Christians have been boldly anti-poor and seemingly anti-minority in recent years. This is not radically new. Evangelicals have let their politics be indicated by anti-POC, anti-women, and anti-LGBTQIA+, and anti-agnostic rhetoric for decades. So if their words aren't good and their actions aren't good, there isn't anything left about them to be good. The most hypocritical piece is that the white evangelical cult claims they are not classist. Well, Trump claimed not to be sexist, and segregation proponents have claimed not to be racist. The intent of such claims is to make the rest of their worldview more palatable. They will tell you that Jesus died for everyone, but that this unconditional sacrifice has strings attached. They will tell you that anyone can attend their church, then excommunicate people inconsistently. The cult does not use mind control wizardry, rather their powerful ideological grouping of dividing and conquering consistently suppresses critical observations of their rhetoric and behavior. But why? If this is such a cultish conspiracy, what is the motive? Well, the answer upon which I arrive is not exciting or good storytelling. It is not some Illuminati-style group of six or a Palpatine-like mastermind. The simplest solve is that there are multiple cult leaders who are all the culprits of the cult of Christianity. Take a look at VernerBooks.com Take a look at VernerBooks.com You can buy the cult of Christianity A church's control contain it Convert at VernerBooks.com It's by me, John Verner Go out and buy my book Buy the cult of Christianity At VernerBooks.com We have already explored the financial incentives of being a pastor, though they are not typically extreme. Perhaps there is something else at play here. Maybe classism serves its own interest. Perhaps it's not about collecting actual coins, but more about a social line of credit. Maybe those who antagonize communism out of a fear that centralized government would have too much power are currently going to church without even realizing the irony. Pastors mimic historical dictators, minus all the direct genocide, yet if the projections I've read are true... That American churches 
have between a $50 billion to $1 trillion budget collectively, and it would cost less than $200 billion to alleviate poverty in the U.S., churches might be even more responsible than our government for those who die from being poor. Also, notice uh, the dramatic range between $50 billion and $1 trillion. Because churches aren't taxed and records are poorly kept, and strangely no one seems to care that much, about what this cult is doing behind closed doors, we really can't have much certainty about how much money churches collect each year. It seems that church leaders reap the benefits of churches' existence more than anyone. Monetarily, they certainly do. Uh, Perhaps in a world where managing people is so incredibly difficult, it seems only fair that pastors should be compensated Again, this premise falls short if you want to have any biblical backing. If pastors moved on from using biblical authority, they could create a more transactional environment and would not be deceitful. It is a lie that the Bible, New or Old Testament, grants pastors access to more benefits than their communities. Even the semantics of a pastor's flock or a pastor's congregation is problematic. The possessive implies ownership at least in our English language. This habit likely developed out of a repeated um, analogy of a shepherd's flock, a favorite analogy of Jesus when talking about servant leaders. It might be valuable to consider that a shepherd might own a flock, but historically speaking, that was more like a hippie in how they dealt with animals. Ancients related to animals with much more respect than our frighteningly horrific systems of animal oppression we have set up. Now, sheep were not the property of a shepherd in as much as they were the livelihood of the shepherd. In Jesus's analogy of the lost sheep, a shepherd cared so much about each individual sheep that if one got lost, he would risk the other 99. Uh, that he had to go find the lost one. Sounds like a pet or a family member. Perhaps not that valuable, but certainly not a mere item that could be owned. Evangelical pastors talk about their flock more like resources, items, and toys. Some are broken or damaged. Some are beneficial and exciting. But the rhetoric implies ownership. And if you indulge your ego, it is not impossible to empathize with a dopamine that might come from being such a leader. Having such control over a tight-knit community. Imagine all the good you could accomplish. Imagine the culture you could foster. Imagine the humanitarian aid you could provide. Imagine the safe spaces you could create. Surely you could accomplish a lot. And the gratitude would feel validating. This is the trap I believe most pastors fall into. There are abusers who sneak into the pastorate and abuse it, but the entire structure by definition directs even the good-hearted to believe they are superheroes. The psychological term that becomes clear is how easily the job induces a messiah complex among religious leaders. This was certainly the case with me when I wanted to be the pastor. I genuinely wanted to help people. Part of growing is learning that it is impossible to love people and control them at the same time. The monetary issues in churches are certainly troubling. It is with great seriousness and severity when I postulate that cult leaders preserve their power regardless of the particular financial situations. I think a popular 
atheistic or agnostic critique of churches focuses too much on the financial exploitation component and skirts the deeper disease that the structure cultivates. Now, archetypes, stereotypes, and typing people in general is tricky business. I am often reluctant to generalize the type of people who dot dot dot. Once again, though, generalizations serve to critique the unquantifiable, and in order to say anything, we have to say something. So what kind of person goes into ministry? Well, it might be more diverse than one would initially suppose. Depending on one's own context, you might picture someone who is over or under average weight, taller or shorter, longer or shorter hair, with a southern, midwest, or Yankee accent. However, when imagining a pastor, it is likely a male figure, a white figure, a heterosexual figure, a suit wearer, with some awkward trendy exceptions, and a Bible carrier. Funnily enough, it would be fun to look through any given pastor's high school yearbook, and you would be shocked at the different backgrounds pastors came from. The conformity is more often learned later on rather than strictly ingrained. Like political families, there are preacher families that have generations of members all engaged in similar vocations. Those who have psychologically analyzed typical politicians in the U.S. have found they all share a common need. That is a need to be recognized and appreciated. Pastors typically have a similar need, in my estimation. They need to be heard and repeated. Nothing delights pastors more than being quoted. Frame this way, such a need is actually easy to empathize with. What an honor to have thoughts valued so highly they are regurgitated and made to be someone else's. The human need may be intrinsic, but those who pursue the pastorate might be especially deficient in this department. Perhaps they were not listened to as a child, and no one would ever echo their opinions. Becoming a pastor is an opportunity for the neglected to have their voices heard. Unfortunately, they will conform in ways that are not copacetic to their identity, adjust their views to obtain a platform, and repeat toxic cycles of inaccurate rhetoric in order to maintain a position that benefits or comforts them. There are outliers to this casting, I'm sure. Still, it is worth analyzing these labels in order to identify the roots of certain problems. Pastors benefit more from their pastoring than those who submit to their authority. Abusers have reasons as to why they abuse, but that does not vindicate their actions from having consequences, or at least it should not. Pastors have little to no accountability for their behavior and postulations. The only accountability offered is typically incestuous boards and sessions that all agree to a basic propaganda. I find myself envious of such freedom that working for yourself must provide, especially when your job is to state your opinion weekly with the supposed backing of the divine. And don't hear me wrong, there is plenty of gross mafia, mobster, vague threatening, and politicking behind the closed doors of churches. Pastors often take the brunt of the cult's forced trauma. Even so, one can be a victim and a perpetrator at the same time. The benefits of being a pastor tangibly outweigh the sacrifices. In evangelical circles, you will be told that the opposite is true. But no one is supported financially, emotionally, and physically more than a pastor of a white evangelical cult. This classist community 
is most gut-wrenching due to the fact that there is no biblical support for such a system to exist within the religion. The Bible is anti-wealthy people. And stating that the Bible is anti-wealth will infuriate evangelicals. They can delude themselves into believing whatever they want. The facts are there for anyone to see. Jesus is especially anti-wealth. Proverbs talks about wanting uh, to neither be in poverty nor have riches. And the entire Bible is written throughout a long span of history where the narratives center on the perspective of the poor, not the wealthy. Perhaps a more level-headed evangelical might try to engage in a conversation on this topic by saying that wealth, according to the Bible, is like fire, good but dangerous. Everyone sees the good, so Bible warns us about the danger. (sighs) Rhetorically, it's an impressive chess move to sidestep all historical context and invent a world that never existed where wealthy people can behave like Christ. I mean, Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And contextually, a camel is likely one of the larger animals that the original audience could imagine. The idiom is intentionally ridiculous. The proper interpretation of this verse is that rich people don't do things that Jesus likes. I've heard multiple times from Christians that the ideal rich man in the Bible is Job. He never loved his wealth more than God. He used it freely to help others. But when he lost it all in one day, he still revered God. And after Job had proven his love for God, God made him rich again. Once again, this rhetorical move is purely modern-day justification for a wealthy class. The story of Job, one of the oldest stories referenced in uh, Scripture, is a story of suffering tribulations, not mere loss of riches. Job lost his family, livestock, friends, and had such tragedy that his own wife told him to curse God and die. The story is not about loss of wealth, but near loss of sanity. Job clung to his faith as an act of defiant strength, not in hopes of regaining wealthy status. Another tactical move of the evangelical cult leader is to make up some hair split between the word wealth and the word riches, when no real distinction of this kind exists in the original biblical language. It might be true that both words would uh, mean something somewhat different to the original audience, but evangelicals distinguish these terms for their own benefit, not historical accuracy. The argument goes that riches correspond with self-indulgent hearts, while the wealthy see themselves as stewards of God's gifts and manage their possessions in ways that honor him. Appreciating your material wealth as a blessing from God to be used in ways that glorify him is one thing. But when this same wealth separates you from God and stifles your spiritual growth, then it's altogether a different matter. Well, notice that this argument is not um, immeasurably, only immeasurably vague, but only qualifies whether wealth is good or bad based on whether or not the person who is wealthy is a Christian. If I told you the only kind of wealth that was proper was if you were a rich Democrat, you would find that incredibly biased and anti-Republican. And nothing wrong with being anti-Republican, but it is problematic to be that obviously inconsistent. Undoubtedly, there are issues with using scripture to understand classism. Primarily, our context is so um, dramatically different than the lifespans recorded in the Bible that ideas of money, wealth, and classes do not quite translate. 
Even so, if you want to find a principle and attempt to cross the historical bridge to make a timeless claim, you absolutely are intellectually dishonest if you claim the Bible is pro-wealth. And virtually all evangelicals I know would recite some basic trope about how the wealthy should not be arrogant, greedy, or uncharitable, but they refuse to denounce even having wealth as incongruous with a lifestyle that mimics Christ. You have to acknowledge that Christ was poor. The apostles were poor. The early Christians were poor. And that the way of this religion never had overtones of prosperity. Now, the majority of white evangelical leaders are anti what they call the prosperity gospel. They would associate this perversion as what televangelists, televangelists uh, a la Joel Osteen, do to the masses. They would say that the gospel is not a promise to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. However, their criticisms are not only largely hypocritical, but they are also red herring because white evangelicals sometimes combine their critiques of the prosperity gospel with their critiques of what they label the social gospel. According to them, the social gospel perversion is those who teach Christians should primarily be concerned with social justice. They are anti that. The evangelical criticism seeks to redirect the conversation away from society's issues and refocus onto the spiritual battlefield. This tactic is designed to not only conveniently ignore evangelicals' responsibility in creating society-level problems, but also to keep the conversations of justice in their arena. Both the prosperity and social gospels muddy the waters and lead a congregation's focus away from the cult leader's control. This is why I do not take critiques of the prosperity gospel seriously when it comes from evangelicals. Not only is it blatantly hypocritical to critique the ultra-wealthy class when similar percentage of budget disparities exist in your local communities, but it is also not a genuine critique because evangelicals do not actively denounce having wealth only having wealth outside of their community. If anything, evangelicals would be more in step with scripture if they relied on the welfare of society to do their work. Consistency would look like uh, every Christian being on food stamps and every pastor living in an old work van. These ideas may sound radical, but Christ was a rather radical figure. I cannot believe you follow Christ if you own two homes. And to be clear, I'm not saying that if that were what evangelical look, uh, evangelicalism looked like, I would be the first to sign up. I would be more compelled, though, like I am compelled by those who live a more monastic lifestyle. And it may not be for me, but at least it makes sense within the context of what they claim to believe. Instead, U.S. Christians largely ignore the parts of scripture that would deconstruct their worldviews and behaviors. The business world seems to be more their Bible, and the American dream seems to be more their Holy Spirit. What a recipe for white nationalist tendencies and classist cults. There is a manufactured narrative around stewardship, and the word stewardship is the easiest apologetic evangelicals used to uh, defend their brazen disobedience of the anti-wealth principles of scripture. The literal definition of stewardship is the job of supervising or taking care of something such as an organization or property. So I work part-time as a sports supervisor for a large nonprofit organization. Therefore, I am a steward of the sports fields we use, the equipment I set up, the records we keep, and so on and so forth. 
in white evangelicalism and other Orthodox Christian sects, they propagate that we are stewards of all our possessions and even stewards of our lives because ownership actually belongs to God. We are mere supervisors minding the store, not owners of our own destiny. And first off, I want to acknowledge the part of this theological doctrine that I like. The rather irreligious cliche, we live on borrowed time, is often used to communicate that we should make the most of our lives. And even further, I like the idea of all of us being stewards of our environment. The world was around before we were born and will hopefully be here after we die. It is worth being a good steward of the earth as far as reducing harmful human impacts into the natural world. Examples of being good stewards would likely be a complete reevaluation of the food industry, compulsory recycling, and holding companies accountable that disrespect our planet. And the punchline I have clearly set up is that I cannot think of a more passively and actively hateful of the environment sect than conservative Christians. White evangelical Christians in particular are on average more likely to question whether human activity contributes to the globe warming, with research suggesting 28% accept climate change as fact, compared with 64% of those without religious affiliation. Over a third of evangelical Christians say there is no solid evidence that climate change is even happening at all. So environmental stewardship is not particularly important to white evangelicals. And the same sentiment is found when it comes to food being produced, land-owned, or anything that might sound like communism. Stewardship to the evangelical means being a good steward of your money. What does proper stewardship look like to evangelicals? Well, a tithe donated to a church regularly is considered to be the bare minimum. This is regardless of how much wealth one actually has. There are no tax brackets. There is no sliding scale. Churches expect you to give up 10% of your income in order to honor the loans their God has given you. And there is an apparent flaw here. With great power comes great responsibility, or to use more biblical language and rip a verse out of context, to whom much was given, of him much will be required. But rather than the spirit of that Jesus quote being tropified, a more common reference is a different Jesus story. Quote, Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched people put in money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to him, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had and all she had to live on. And I've heard many pastors use this passage to try to guilt the poorest class in their church into an obligation to tithe. However, even a plain reading of this passage seems to be less a commandment to the poor and more a reprimand to the rich. In fact, showing off your money by giving it back to a god is shunned by their own god. Stewardship of money is a simple buzzword used to manipulate people's money. The only three passages that even use this term uh, use this term stewardship theologically talk about leaders being stewards of God's grace or the mystery of God. In other words, safeguarding the mystic from being abused by cult leaders. Instead, pastors have become what the apostles were warning against. 
The classism that benefits the cult of Christianity is especially frustrating due to the potential for Christians to be radically countercultural to the rest of the United States. The founder of their religion was a Middle Eastern Jew who hated greed, especially among religious leaders. And rather than evangelicals taking cues from this figure, evangelicals create their own theologies to justify classist beliefs and behaviors. With the freedoms, favor, and tax breaks given to churches the opportunity to forgo meritocratic ideals and serve the needs of the masses is vast. Catholics have built their fair share of hospitals, and evangelicals have sent out shoeboxes full of dollar store trinkets, but never at the cost of their ownership of possessions. Folks have always been reluctant to give up everything they have, and frankly, I don't blame anyone for liking their things. But maybe what would be a reasonable request is asking Christians to have no attachment to their possessions. That would be in keeping with Job's story. That would be consistent with the idea of stewardship. It would be much more logical for the Christian to wake up wondering how they could serve the poor, not how they could maximize their church giving. I think there's a conception that churches are charitable. That conception is wrong. Charities in the U.S. are not even as charitable as, charitable as we would like them to be, and much less is required from churches than nonprofits. Also, pastors don't really tithe, which is fine considering it would be rather redundant. Um, some churches have a tithe built into the contract a pastor signs, which again seems more symbolic than practical. In fact, that is the best way to summarize this problem of Christian classism. Churches are more symbolic than practical. And symbols can be powerful, mind you. I'm not anti-symbolism. I am anti-denial. And it is an exercise of denial to engage in symbolic nonsense while ignoring the practical outworking those symbols are supposed to represent. Literally anyone could start a church, claim the name of Christ, claim to be charitable, and demand financial support from its members. There are no consequences. Wouldn't tangible numbers be some sort of indicator, or in Christianese, fruit, that a church is actually doing what they claim? Yet tangible numbers are pretty hard to discover, especially if you are an outsider to individual churches. Classism doesn't permit accurate records of quantifiable reality. If there are accurate measures that provide evidence about what a a classist system produces, a bleak picture quickly arises the amount of suffering classism causes and how few folks actually benefit from it is depressing. In fact, those at the top who benefit in power or money are are still not benefiting in any metaphysical sense. How tortured their souls must be to take on the role of a villain. Bullies have problems too. But even so, it is up to the abused to put bullies in their place when systems fail to have consequences. And since the church bullies preserve their power through their rhetoric and financial support, wisdom would dictate to stop listening to them and stop paying them. Until there is widespread charitable action by evangelicals, tithing and church membership only preserves the power of pastors. The sheer amount of power that pastors do indeed possess makes me daydream about the potential, but that idealism is a distracting exercise that cult leaders depend on. 
Potential for good is not grounds for dismissing demonstrable damage done by a group. I would love nothing more for radical changes in culture to dictate pastors rescinding payments and churches giving 85% of their budget to the poor. But an inspiration, that, that, that certainly would be an inspiration. And I will be shocked if such a culture shift happens in my lifetime. During COVID, I received more checks in the mail from a capitalist government than any church has ever offered. And when I was going through my own homelessness and hunger, there were Christians who gave me financial support out of their own heart and wallets. But the only time I was a line item on a church budget sheet was when I preached, played in a worship band, or ran the soundboard. Financial support was not based on my needs, but rather what I was able to contribute to the community. Remember, churches are not supposed to be mere businesses. They are tax-exempt, revered, and unregulated institutions. Money runs a church more than love. Pastors control a congregation more than vice versa. Evangelicalism is upside down and inside out and does nothing preserve its own classism. And I'm sure there are others who have felt more supported from churches than I have. And I don't wish anyone to feel guilty or confused about genuine encouragement they have received. I will demand they recognize that their experience is not universal, and it is my opinion that it is less common rather than more. And here is an exercise if you are not convinced that churches engage in classism. Imagine your ideal church. It can be any kind of church, as long as it can still be classified as Christian. Perhaps even write down the church governing structure, how many participants there would be, what kind of job titles would be needed. If you're good at drawing, maybe play architect and uh, blueprint what your ideal church would look like. For extra credit, establish three theological statements. Now, generously assume you will have an annual budget of a half million dollars. Try to put aside half of it for charitable endeavors and use the other half to budget for staff. Final step, go do it. I'm serious. Go start that church. You might be surprised how easy it is to start a church in the United States. Literally nothing is stopping you from a legal standpoint. Think I'm crazy? Think there are significant obstacles in establishing your ideal church? Well, maybe there are some obstacles, but I can promise they're not legal. So those obstacles in the way of your ideal charitable church? All those obstacles will point back to the classist system that the cult of Christianity has established. And you can scoff off my hypothetical if you desire, but I am as certain as humanly possible that I am right. Classes churches prevent potential idealism a good-natured Christian may want to manifest. In God We Trust is written on U.S. currency, but distrust in Christians is written on the wall. Nothing trickles down, and even if it did, why are we only expecting trickles? The only way you can rise through the ranks of Christianity is to indulge, regurgitate, and continue to propagate classist language and behavior. And if you want to reject classism, you will have to reject the cult 
of Christianity. If you wish to learn more about what's going on in my life or wish to purchase my book, go to vernerbooks.com. If you'd like to support this podcast, please continue to listen, follow, share, and consider supporting through the link in the show's notes. For as little as 99 cents a month, you can help me book guests, upgrade my production value, and start exciting projects. Thank you for listening, and remember to keep love in your life, hope in your heart, and searching in your soul.